You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. That's where we're going to be. Galatians 1, verse 11. Follow along. I'm just going to read it at the beginning, and then we're going to fly in. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, by inference, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That's an important verse. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You've heard from my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles. By the way, I'll go through all this in a second. Apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, it's kind of given a little, 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 little timeline of what happened after his conversion. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or we would know him as Peter, that's just his Aramaic name, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I, still, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, were, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Amen. There's a book, a classic book, called David Copperfield. Most of it, if you own it at your house, it provides a paperweight for your desk because it's huge. But I've taken on the task of trying to fight through it. David Copperfield is all about, it's basically an autobiography, fictional autobiography, but an autobiography nonetheless about a, this is going to shock you, about a person named David Copperfield. David Copperfield, it starts from his birth and just goes straight through his entire life. David Copperfield was born to a mother named Clara. His father passed before he was born. And he and Clara and their housekeeper, they didn't have much, but they had each other. And they worried about food and home, money. They didn't have much, but they had each other. And there was love and peace in their house. Everything changed. Dun, dun, dun. When a man comes into the picture. Name was Mr. Edward Murdstone. A well-to-do gentleman with resources. He was well-respected by those he knew. Some would say feared by those who knew him. A man that could care for Clara and little David had the money to do it, had the space to do it. And he had eyes for a young, attractive mother named 
Clara. With such dreamy wooing by Mr. Murdstone, Clara fell fast. Clara held this hope of someone who could care for her and her boy. Well, David, fast forward nine years old, he goes on a trip with the housekeeper to meet extended family, comes back to his house, and what does he find is sitting in his drawing room, not only his mother, but Mr. Murdstone, and his mother's name was no longer Clara Copperfield, it was Clara Murdstone. They got married. Which is, I don't know if that's just the way it was in the 19th century. The boy didn't even know. But Clara and David's lives after that turned into hell. What was smooth and promising of someone who could care for them was now demanding, controlling, and led, and someone who led his house in cruelty. David pens down all the times where if he did not live up to the standards of his stepdad, he would be beat for it. And Clara, who was one who showed affection, was now led in cruelty and coldness by a heartless man. That home that did, before didn't have many resources, but had joy, love, and peace, now had a lot of resources, but had fear, silence, and abuse. I think all of us, when we look back in our lives, we, to a greater or lesser degree, and probably maybe not to that extent, but maybe to that extent that you've experienced with someone in your life, you've all been taken advantage of. We've all experienced, to a greater or lesser degree, what it, what it means when there's a promise that someone holds out for us, and then once it's revealed to us, it's not what we thought it was going to be. We've been taken advantage of. We've been used. When there was a promise of something good, but it was just a means for something sinister. There's a man named Paul in the Bible whose life had been changed by a message that he received. Got quiet in here. I'm not sure what happened. He was confronted by a God that showed him favor, not because of what he had done, but despite what he had done, a God who was full of grace, that worked, had worked on our behalf or his behalf to give life to those who put faith in him. And that life-changing message that had changed his own life propelled him to tell everyone else in his life to go from town to town to town to town speaking about the same message that changed his life, hoping that it would change more to go to places that had never heard about this message. And one of those places was a place called, a region called Galatia. It's a region where the way of Jesus, or who it came to be known now, Christians had spread and churches were planted. And Paul, in this book, in Galatians, there's a grave concern because that message that changed his life was under siege. It was being threatened. The promise of life, like Edward Murdstone, a promise to save and care for you, was now a false gospel full of control and your own effort. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but that's, that's not enough. 
the gospel of grace was being threatened. So just background, before I kind of get into the nitty-gritty of Galatians here, the ones who attacked that message, as we learned about last week, which by the way, if you want to get more of a background about, you got to check out last week's message when we gave a little bit more about background and, and the beginning of the book and how, how they had distorted the gospel. But the ones who attacked that life-changing message, of course, attacked the messenger named Paul. And the threat was that his authority in message and in position was now being called into question. That a Jew, Paul, would now tell non-Jews who were called Gentiles that they didn't need to become a Jew to become acceptable to God. And there were Jews who went to those places being like, this is a lie. This Jewish person is spineless. He's a coward. He doesn't, he's telling you, you don't need to become Jewish. That's a lie. He's a people pleaser. He's withholding the truth from you. Of course, they didn't believe in a gospel of grace. That God would accept you as you are and forgive you of your sins that you have done by his work, not your own. But they said he can't be trusted in his message and his position. Man, how we feel the same thing. Man, what authority do you trust in your life? It's probably a very short list of people that are in authoritative positions that you trust. Do you trust the authority when you turn on the news that they're telling you the truth? Come on now, do you? No, you don't. Of course you don't. Man, do we feel this, that they felt. This authority person, he's coming to your church, he's lying to you. He's bamboozling you with lies, religious lies, because he's a people pleaser, he's spineless, he's a coward. He can't be trusted in his message and his position that he's claimed, which was an apostle. What authority do you trust? You know, we tend to, by the way, what I'm saying, like, I, I'm talking to myself here. When, like, when I'm writing down this, it's not like, what does John need to hear? This is like, I'm, I need to hear the same thing. We tend to fluctuate between two poles on a spectrum when it comes to authority figures. You know what I'm talking about, right? Either, when it comes to authority figures, either we trust that person because they're in our camp without question. They are telling the truth when they're clearly not. Or the other side of the pole, which is we don't like them and we're not going to listen to what they say anyway, even if they are telling the truth. I've said this before. Uh, we are more prone to be deceived by voices we like, ones that sound like our own camp, than the other side. It's hard to be deceived by someone where your ears are already up, waiting, for, waiting to pick apart what they're saying. We're more likely to be deceived by a voice that we like. It's true for me. We hear what we want to hear. And we don't hear what we don't want to hear. And these Jewish Christians in this church, in Galatians, for the first time, there was this intermingling between them and Gentiles, but historically, Jews were not to associate with Gentiles. 
But now there was this intermingling that Paul and these new Christians were encouraging. And all of these Jewish Christians are still getting used to this thing. This is pretty taboo. But now there's another narrative that supports the message that they've heard their whole lives, which is these Gentiles should be more like us. Yeah, that's a message I like to hear. Let's, like, yeah, that's the truth. That must be the message from God. And I love this. Paul blows all of this up in verse 11. It says this. I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel. Like, I didn't make this up. This isn't my message. This isn't like some slogan or something. It's like, how do I rope these people into the, this, this thing that I want them to be in? Like, this isn't my message. This isn't your message. This is the divine message that comes from God himself. This has nothing to do with your culture. This has nothing to do with my culture. This is God's message, and it's the divine message from the word of God and the work of God, which both of those are represented in Jesus. And this may be the hardest, humblest, but greatest part of Christian growth, that we get to, as we grow in faith, we get to peel back layers of assumptions that we make that we thought was the gospel, that we assumed was the gospel, through maybe our cultural upbringing, the church that we're a part of, the religion that we were a part of, this is the way to God. But as we grow in our faith, we peel back those cultural assumptions and religious experience to actually get to Jesus. That's a hard, humble process. But it's also one of the greatest parts of Christian growth. John Stott said this, which by the way, like I'm not a big... I'm always like a little bit, you know, when someone quotes someone too much. We're like, okay, you should probably move on to another commentary. You know what I mean? Exactly with what I said before. It's like, if you're going to be deceived, it's going to be by that guy. Because you're not even listening. You're not even discerning whether that guy's telling you the truth. You're just believing it. You know, the, this happens in Christian circles, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a John Piper guy. Or a John MacArthur guy. Like, this, this is like the holy word, what this guy says. So I, t I tend not to listen to the same person over and over. I do have a weakness when it comes to John Stott, though. <laughs> uh, so if I quote John Stott too much, you can tell me. But John Stott said this. It's probably a terrible introduction to what I'm about to say. You're like, is this even true? Our concern as followers of Jesus is neither with a religion called Christianity. That's not our concern nor with a culture called Western civilization. Our concern as followers of Jesus is neither with a religion called Christianity, nor with a culture called Western civilization. Our concern is with a person, Jesus of Nazareth. It's what do you think about Jesus? That's the divine message. You know why this is important? It's the divine message that brings divine realities. See, as we proclaim this divine message from God here, even in this church, what happens, or what's supposed to happen, it's that this is the place where life, as it always was intended to be lived out, starts being lived out through that divine message. 
It's where that divine message is now made manifest amongst us. See, remember, as we said this last week, remember the gospel is not just something that you hear and it only matters when you die. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a message that invades all of life so that all of your life now matters. You know, when we pray, like Jesus taught us to pray, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, or you could apply that to any, in my home as it is in heaven, in Restoration Church as it is in heaven, what we're saying is that through the divine message, we, we want to see God. We want to see the divine reality lived out here. We want to see heaven here. That's what a church is. Church just doesn't gather and has Bible studies and small groups and a worship team and says, yes, we made budget. That's not a church. A church is where we see heaven lived out here on earth. That's a church. Because it's the divine message that produces divine realities that only come from God. So you know what Paul does? After saying that this isn't my message, It's not mine, it's not yours, it's God's message. So what does he do? He tells how this message has invaded his entire life. How his entire life has has been changed by it. So I'm going to go through this quickly, but it's kind of a hard passage. Even when I read it first, I was like, what am I supposed to say from this? This is like Paul giving his little little, little step-by-step, like what happened after his conversion. And Colin already did a great job when we went through the book of Acts, explaining Paul's conversion. But here's where I think Paul is going. This is the burden that I think Paul is going as, that I want all of us to wrestle with. I believe that God wants all of us to wrestle with as we go through this passage. Here's the big question, okay? When it comes down, because we can work through all of the intricacies of what happened to Paul, but it doesn't really matter. Here's the question that we have to wrestle with. Is this gospel, is this divine message, is it an end to you? Is it the goal to you? Or is it merely just a means for something you want more? Is the gospel the end or the means in your life? Like, is, is the gospel what informs everything about your life? Let's take politics, which is like, Aaron, what are you doing? Don't, don't cross this line. Does the gospel inform your politics, or is the gospel just a means for the politics that you want to see happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're going to get into detail in this in a second. But that applies to your success, your culture, your family, even your church. So, lessons from the story of Paul. How do you know it's the divine message? First one is this. Look what it says in verse 13 and 14. You have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently. This is Paul proving why it's the divine message. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And that says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, called me, was pleased to reveal his son to me. First thing is this. The divine message isn't about the level of passion that one has. You know, if the divine message is going to be lived out here, it's not the level of passion that we have. It's about what you do with the person of Jesus. 
You know, sometimes we hear, like, as long as you believe hard in something, it doesn't really matter what you believe in. That's not true. Paul believed in something really hard. And we like to use the word passion in Christian circles. There's passion conferences. We've now, I see it all the time on references, that it's like, I'm passionate. Paul was very passionate. And he killed people because of it. He was very zealous, which is, could, be applied, could be translated passionate. He was very extremely zealous for the tradition of his fathers. So if the divine message is going to be received in our church, it's not the level of passion that proves that. His passion actually led to mistreatment of other people. And I like what he's like, He's talking to these Jewish Christians who are like, yeah, yeah, you should believe in our culture. You should become like us. He's like, you think you have pride in your heritage? Uh, I have, you know my former life in Judaism? I persecuted the church of God. That's how much pride I had for my heritage. Anyone who was a threat to it, I tried to destroy. His persecution was proof of his passion. Like you thought his persecution wasn't an indication of sin. It revealed the depth of his commitment to the observance of the law, that he was willing to snuff out anyone who was a threat to it. And I think what, in some ways, he's probably channeling in, you know, historical figures. And sometimes, like, even in Christian circles, we do this. Like, there'll be a pastor being like, I'm like a modern-day John Calvin. It's like, God, come on, man. Or like, I'm like a modern-day Martin Luther. But I think Paul and what he's saying here was like, I'm like a modern-day modern Matthias. If you know Jewish history, between the periods of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were ancient Greeks, one in particular who was particularly cruel to the Jewish people called Antiochus Epiphanes, who started to do like things that were very uncomfortable with the Jewish people. He started to slaughter pigs on t- in, in the actual temple, which would have been obviously completely blasphemous to the Jewish people, almost in spite, and Matthias led a people called the Hasmoneans to uprise against those people and led them to freedom. It's almost like Paul being like, you know, there's another threat called Christians in our midst. I'm like a modern-day Matthias, and everyone who follows, follows with me is a modern-day Hasmonean against this new threat. <laughs> Paul didn't need more passion. probably needed to tone it down a little bit. Paul didn't need more passion. So if you see on his reference, I'm really passionate, uh, maybe you should be a little more temperate. We've seen what you, how you react. Paul didn't need more passion. See, when Jesus appeared before him, he was utterly astonished that his passion was wrong. Rather than fighting for God, he was fighting with him. You know, it's a sobering thought as I was reading through this that someone can be that passionately wrong. But it's true. Someone can be that passionately wrong. The gospel isn't merely about expression, it's about what do you do with Jesus? You know, when Jesus comes before Paul and says, why are you so passionately persecuting me? You've been wrong about me the whole time. The gospel isn't merely about expression, it's about Jesus. I think this is where we need to go. Those of you who are struggling with faith in general, 
You know, when you look back in your life and be like, man, there was a time in my life I was really passionate about faith and really involved in church. And, you know, I've seen the church and, and, and maybe, maybe you've been in an experience where people have let you down or Christians have let you down. I think you've got to wrestle with Jesus. Like, that's where, it com- that's where the faith comes down to. Maybe you were in an abusive culture, a really passionately abusive culture. So was Paul. But what changed his life was his wrestle with the person of Jesus. Maybe you've got a friend who is, we've used this word a lot, like deconstruction, deconstructing the faith, faith. First of all, never write someone off as that. I tend not to use that word because it's overused. But the point is this. My suggestion, my, my advice to you is come to the person of Jesus. You can go through someone's cult, like church culture and Christian culture and everything like that, but that's not, at the end of the day, that's not what they have to wrestle with. They have to wrestle with Jesus. The divine message is not about passion. It's about a person. Secondly, and I don't really know how to put this, and you can, this is why I kind of struggle with this message. Look, Paul is taking great pains in defending where this message comes from and why. I think his point is, is saying, like, this is not my agenda. This is God's agenda for my life. And the question I think we wrestle with is, like, what agenda are we following? Is it a political one? Is it a cultural one? Or is it the agenda of God for my life? You know, Paul goes through, like, in, starting in verse 16, it's like, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I preach him. I didn't even go immediately to consult with anyone. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. In fact, I took some time. I went away to Arabia, just me and the Lord, and then returned again to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him, but I was only with him for 15 days. I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. I think the point he's making is this. It's not like someone is feeding me their agenda and I'm just being used to support someone's agenda in your life. Like, there's no ulterior motive coming, coming from me here. There's no hidden agenda at play. In fact, Paul goes on even further. It, it says at the beginning in verse 4 in 15, it says, this, per, this God who set me apart before I was born, before I could even choose for myself, that this was the purpose for my life to preach to you the gospel. There's no hidden narrative going on. There's no hidden agenda. I think this is where we need to be careful. Even in church, we need to be really careful that the narrative becomes about something else more than the divine message of the gospel. It becomes a political gospel. It becomes the message of Jesus to support my political claim. It becomes the message of Jesus to support the culture that I'm comfortable with. When the narrative is about something else other than the divine message, we're on really shaky ground. But Paul claims his motivation from the calling of God upon his life that happened before he even had a choice in the matter. That every day Paul gets up and hears Jesus' voice in his head for what he's going to do that day, which is preach the gospel to Gentiles. I guess my, the only application question I can, ask, I can ask you, as you watch the news, as you live your life in this culture that we are peeling back layers, it's like whose voice do you hear for the agenda of your life? Was it your mom's voice, your dad's voice? Was it the news anchor's voice on TV? Is it some pastor's voice or is it the voice of God? 
Thirdly, and the most importantly is this. Look what it says at the end. It says, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea. This is verse 22. That are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorify God because of me. The point Paul is making is this. This is the divine message. Because only the divine message does divine things. Only the divine message does things that only God can do. Which has changed someone who was a persecutor of Christians to now a preacher of the gospel. And his point is like, all these other little churches, you see all these other little churches, they don't squabble over messaging, they don't squabble over, over you know, picking apart my message. All they see is the testimony of my life and say, this is impossible. No one can do this except for God. It must be the divine message. This is the gospel. The divine message does divine things and they glorified God because of him. I think Paul is just saying, this is what I want. This is what my life, this is what I want my life to be. Not to push an agenda, not to claim success, but that through my life, people would get their eyes off me and lift their eyes to God. Because that life-changing message, that divine message changed me. That's what I want my life to be. Guys, is the gospel the end? Or is it the means to another end for your life? Is the gospel just something where you can say, yeah, God, I'm a Christian, I accept Jesus, so therefore give me what I want, what I really want in life? So you don't really want the gospel. One of my favorite movies that came out recently, 19, it's called 1917. I think I've seen it like five times. I've watched it with some of you. Even I'm like, you got to see this movie. And then I watch it again because I love it so much. What I love about the, what I love about the movie 1917 is that two men are sent on a mission with a, something way more powerful than a weapon, a gun. They're sent with a message. And that message was to save 1,600 people by calling off the fight that had already been, that had already been started, that was going to start the next day. I'm not going to give away the plot. Guys, God calls us to carry this message that will change lives. This is what our life is. And it's one that would save hundreds of lives. A message that changed the life of Paul, a message that's changed my life. And it's that message alone that brings heaven to earth. God, thank you so much that you gave us this message to wrestle with, to peel back layers of assumptions that we make all the time. Yeah, I can... I can look back in my life at times in my life where I thought, yeah, this is the gospel, this is what it is, and I was wrong. There are times when I sat in a service with tears running down my face 
being passionate about a gospel that wasn't even the gospel. One of my, the greatest joys, God, is over the past number of years to slowly peel back layers of assumptions I have made to see Jesus, the grace of God. Lord, I pray, as we all wrestle with the same thing, that we can often be dis- have a distorted view that even people in our life can put up blinders in our life that we would now no longer see the gospel for what it is as these Galatians were struggling with. Lord, may we always come back. May we always come back to the divine message. May we as a church always preach that same divine message that we would see heaven among us. Lord, we thank you. We pray for all this in your name. Amen.